and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. And right after that gigantic ordeal of pain and suffering, right after the most difficult trial you've ever seen, everything in the sky, everything you thought was grounded and sturdy and dependable was shaken to its core. It ceased to work as it always had. And you watched in horror as creation itself seemed to unravel around you. Imagine I began today's sermon like that. Imagine that the entry point of my sermon was in the middle of what was most assuredly a very important conversation. You weren't sure who was talking or who was being spoken to, and other than the fact that the subject matter sounded like absolute calamity, you weren't clear on the plot and you had no idea what was going on. You would find yourself squarely in the dark and your only hope for clarification would be to continue to listen. And starting a story like that is quite an old storyteller trick. You place your listener squarely in the dark and you make their departure from it totally dependent upon you, totally dependent upon listening to the rest of the story. And if you do it right, it can be quite effective. But not every story does it right. Sometimes you hear a story and instead of the plot becoming more and more clear, it becomes more and more muddy. Instead of your original questions being answered, The story just moves on and never brings those questions back up. And as if doing that wasn't bad enough, as the story continues, it poses more and more questions, questions that you begin to fear won't be answered either. Does anyone like a story like that? No. That feeling of listening to a story that poses questions it never seems to answer is the exact way I felt the first few times I read today's gospel text. Verse 29, is the, yeah, verse 29 is the beginning of today's gospel text, but it's clearly not the beginning of the conversation. It's clearly not the beginning of the story. And much like my example of a story that poses questions it never answers, our gospel text, taken by itself at least, seems to produce similar results. But we're in luck this morning. We have access to the story before our gospel text. And you need to look no further for helpful context than the beginning of Matthew chapter 24. That's where I want to start this morning. I want to uncover the conversation before our gospel text. I want to see the context it provides. Then I want to show you something I think is absolutely beautiful. Something that we Christians all too often take for granted. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 24. And I'll start on the very first verse. Now, the first two verses of Matthew 24 set the stage beautifully. Jesus is leaving Jerusalem, and as he's exiting the city, his disciples point out how beautiful the buildings are. They point out to him how beautiful the temple is. And instead of turning around and taking the sight in, Jesus said something to the disciples that must have made their jaws drop. Jesus told his disciples this, You see all these buildings? You see all of their beauty and their grandeur. Truly I say to you, soon they'll be gone. Their beauty and their grandeur will be gone. Because soon not one stone will be left standing upon another. Jerusalem, the holy city, will practically be destroyed. And the temple will soon be a heap of rubble. Its shining beauty rendered imperceivable. 
And this building, the temple, a singular building, it occupied a place so central in Jewish identity and culture that it's hard for us to imagine a contemporary parallel. Imagine if we combined into a single building the cultural significance of the White House, the Smithsonian, Congress, the Statue of Liberty, Arlington National Cemetery, Mount Rushmore, Independence Hall, and just for good measure, the Constitution itself. Imagine how central to our national identity that one single building would be. And if you can begin to imagine the sheer importance of that building, you can begin to imagine how tragic its destruction would be. And even though that comparison can get it close, it ultimately fails to communicate the sheer cultural weight and significance of the temple. And here's why. If that mythical American structure was demolished by an enemy, if the combined meaning of all of those American icons were turned into rubble and the Constitution were burned before our very eyes, for as tragic as that would be, that destruction would not prevent our worship and communion with God, would it? Of course not. Our national identity and our religious identity aren't the same thing. But that wasn't the case in Israel. In Israel, the temple was the very place your communion with God occurred. And so its destruction implied a severing, a cutting off of access to God himself. The religious significance of the temple was the bedrock and cornerstone of Jewish identity. Imagining that building completely destroyed and taken apart would have been a horrific thing for any Jew to envision. It would mean the death of the most central icon in their cultural identity. It would mean the destruction of the central feature of their religious experience. Their worship of God, their communion with God as they had known it for centuries would be at an end. If something is central to Jewish identity, in in culture as the temple were destroyed, what could possibly replace it? What could possibly be as beautiful as the temple? What could be a better sign to the nation that God truly does dwell with his people? What could be as important as the temple? What could ascend to take the place of the temple and become the most central and recognizable icon of a true faith in God? Throughout his public ministry, Jesus said and done many things, which implied that it was he, not the temple, that was now the center of God's work. Christ had said things in the temple itself, which implied that the whole thing was now under the judgment of God. And furthermore, he possessed the power and authority to pronounce such judgment. It was Jesus, not the temple, that was now the center and focal point of a true faith in God. And so far as I can tell, most, if not all, of Matthew 24 is focused on that exact reality. The impending doom of Jerusalem and the temple contrasted against the impending redemption of the whole creation. The ending of an age where God was sought in a building and the beginning of a new one where he is worshipped not on this mountain or that, but is worshipped in spirit and truth. Most, if not all, of Matthew 24 is focused on the destruction of the temple and the enthronement of Christ. And while it is my contention that today's gospel is about the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and that our gospel text is about that event and what God intends to do afterwards, 
There are others, much smarter than I, who have a different interpretation. There are others that read Matthew 24 with an apocalyptic lens, a lens through which they see not the destruction of the temple, but the final destruction of earth. There are those who view today's gospel text as a description of the second coming of Christ. And listen, guys, maybe they're right. Maybe that's exactly what Matthew chapter 24 is about, and I'm totally off base. I had 12 years of public school in Mississippi, so who knows? <laughs> maybe, maybe they're exactly right. Maybe verse 29, where the sun is darkened and the powers of heaven are shaken, isn't about an event at the end of time. And maybe I'm wrong to think that verse 29 is about the sun going dark and the earth shaking at the crucifixion of Christ. Maybe they're right about verse 30. Maybe the description of the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven is about the sight of his second coming. And maybe I'm wrong, and it isn't about the ascension and enthronement of Christ. Maybe verse 31 is about a future event where the angels gather God's church before the great and final judgment. And it isn't about God announcing to the whole creation that redemption has finally come through his Son. You see, I think our gospel text is about Christ telling his disciples about the coming destruction of Jerusalem, about the coming destruction of the temple, about the ending of an age where God is sought in, the be- in a building, in the beginning of birth pains that signaled something brand new was coming into the world. Through his death and resurrection, through his ascension and by the infilling of his spirit, Christ would make all things new. That age would end. By the Spirit, the Son of the Father would create a new people. A people that looked like Him. A people that loved like Him. A people that forgave like Him. A people that suffered the persons of the world like Him. And in each one of these people, in each one of these reborn and consecrated people, the very Spirit of God would dwell in their hearts. And his dwelling in them would make each and every one of them as holy and as beautiful as the temple itself. That level of revolutionary change is exactly what I think today's gospel text is about. Now, some read this chapter and take a different approach. Some say that Matthew 24 is about the second coming of Christ, like I've said, and about the incredible upheaval that the world will witness when that occurs. And while it's difficult for me to read Matthew 24 like that and make sense of it, I don't want to dismiss the subject of Christ's second coming altogether. I want to admit up front, though, that eschatology, the study of end times, has never really been my thing. The debate around things like the fourth horn of the beast or about which new pestilence may be the seventh bowl of wrath or which world tragedy was the opening of the third seal, that debate has been infuriating to me. I have no interest in doing that whatsoever. The exacts around Christ's second coming are a little muddy, and there's a variety of opinions and views, and I have absolutely no interest in diving into that this morning. Well-meaning, Jesus-loving people may possess different views about the details around his return. And for as different as they may be on those details, there's one thing the church has always agreed upon when it comes to the return of Christ. Four simple words. He will come again. And it's here with his second coming 
that I want to try to leave one of the most beautiful pictures in Scripture. You've all heard the word apocalypse before, I'm sure. And if you're like most people in our culture, when you hear the word apocalypse, you think of like a comet crashing in the earth or a nuclear war or zombies or something like that, pestilence, plague. The word apocalypse is synonymous with a cataclysmic ending. But did you know that the word apocalypse finds its roots in a much, much different understanding? I remember my grandmother had an old coffee table Bible. And I remember the very first time I opened it up and I saw the last book in the Bible was called The Apocalypse of John. I remember thinking, I'm glad this book's imaginary because that's nuts. (laughs) I wasn't a Christian yet. But it was only later that I learned the true understanding, the Christian understanding of the word apocalypse. The word apocalypse literally means to uncover, to unveil. And there's two main ways Christians have thought about what this unveiling might mean, and both are true. The first is that when Christ returns, when Christ splits the eastern sky and he rolls it back like a scroll, Christ is uncovered. Christ is unveiled. And the second understanding of the word apocalypse is the one that I find to be one of the most beautiful expressions in all of Christendom. And it's this. Just as a groom, once the nuptials have been said, lifts the veil from the face of his bride and they behold each other face to face, so too does Christ unveil his church at his second coming when he lifts the sky. Christ lifts the veil of this world from our eyes and we see him standing before us in all of his glory. That's the apocalypse. That is the unveiling. That is the hope of every single Christian who has ever drawn breath on this earth. Guys, as we enter the Advent season, as the church begins a brand new year, it will be easy to get distracted by the innumerable things that are swirling around us. But instead of submitting to distraction, can we remember that this season of Advent signals the beginning of a story where God makes everything new? A story so revolutionary and paradigm-shifting that the temple itself ceases to be the locus of His presence. God's presence would now reside in the hearts of men Can we remember that when this world is screaming about calamity and disaster, that the church has always been those who were filled by hope, not fear? Because the church has always been those who were faithfully awaiting the unveiling. We are faithfully awaiting the coming apocalypse. Amen.